0: About 10 years ago, my oldest brother emailed me about some interesting information he had found out about our family history. He had done some genetic testing with 23 and me a few years earlier and that process had identified a few individuals who were uh, considered high probability of being potential relatives. So my brother reached out and connected with one in particular who sent him information about the immigration of our paternal great-grandfather, including the date of his immigration from Germany and the name of the ship he came over on. You know, the last 15 or 20 years have witnessed a rapidly growing interest in personal ancestry and genealogy such that new businesses have been started and websites created to respond to this interest. Simply put, some people want a more complete picture of their family history. Websites like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and CRI Genetics are among the most popular websites for ancestry research. And upwards of 100 million people have submitted DNA samples and are now logged into databases to be searched. Ancestry research is kind of a blend of science and entertainment and is often hailed as an opportunity to uncover family history, find unknown relatives that are alive today, and maybe even a few family secrets along the way, but participants be warned they say. Participants be warned, once discoveries are made, whether good or bad, they cannot be unmade. Now, interest in genealogy is not a recent phenomenon. In ancient Israel, genealogies were meticulously kept and diligently preserved and fiercely protected. Many genealogies are provided in the pages of the biblical record, Some are longer, others are shorter. The book of Genesis, for instance, provides six or seven genealogies. The longest genealogy we find in the Bible is found where, do you know? First Chronicles, right? It's nine chapters long, this genealogy. It may not be an exhaustive list of names, but it is certainly exhausting to read. And while the value of genealogies may not be immediately obvious to you and me, they served a very critical purpose for the nation of Israel. One resource I found listed nine essential functions that the genealogies provided. Nine. Now, for our purposes today, I'm only going to list two of them. The first one being the genealogies would prove who descended from the line of Abraham. The genealogies proved who descended from the line of Abraham. It was important to show a Jewish ancestry because many of God's covenants and promises were made specifically to the Jewish people. And further... When the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and moved into the Promised Land, the Promised Land was divided and distributed amongst the 12 tribes and those families as their inheritance. And therefore, in each successive generation, the rightful ownership of the land was substantiated using the genealogies to prove a family line and tribal heritage the genealogies mattered second the genealogies would also reveal who descended from the line of David they would reveal who descended from the line of David and this was vital information as well because during the reign of King David God had promised to establish David's kingdom forever I will make your name great, God had told David. I will appoint a place for my people, and I will give them rest from their enemies. And I will raise up your descendant after you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, God had said. Your throne will be established forever. That's 2 Samuel 7. So being able to prove lineage to David was necessary for anyone making a claim for the throne. So again, the genealogies mattered for that. Now I share all of this with you because as we continue in our study of Luke's gospel, we come this morning to the final portion of chapter 3 where Luke provides a genealogy now quite frankly most people do not read the genealogies right because the names are hard to pronounce and we don't know who most of these people are it kind of feels like we're crashing a random family reunion in somebody's backyard doesn't it i mean we have no idea who these people are and we feel no connection to them whatsoever and so most people When they come to a genealogy, they just skip over that section and move on to more interesting material, right? And not many sermons are preached about genealogies. In fact, I have never heard one, ever. You and I are hearing my first one today. (laughs) In many commentaries make only a passing reference to a genealogy before they move on to another section. But I want us to linger here this morning. And I'd like for us to read this list of names out loud together. No, I'm just kidding. Just (laughs) kidding. We we aren't going to do that. can't pronounce half of the names in the list. Instead, what I'd like to do is ask for a volunteer to stand and re- no, we're not going to do that either. <laughs> so, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, I really do want to linger in the genealogy for the morning. And I do that because I believe both Matthew and Luke were inspired by the Holy Spirit to include a genealogy. And I believe there are a few valuable insights that we need to acknowledge and accept before we move on into Luke chapter 4. So I will be making a few observations about both the genealogy in Matthew and also in Luke, because I believe a more complete picture can be seen if we look at the two genealogies together. And I have provided both genealogies in your sermon outline, and I have highlighted in red the names and phrases that I will be commenting on this morning just to make it easy for you to follow where I'm at in the genealogy. And I think some of what we will discover this morning just might surprise you. Now Luke introduces his genealogy in verse 23 by telling us that Jesus was 30 years old when he began his ministry. 30 was considered kind of the traditional age of maturity when a man had reached his full strength. Remember, kind of adulthood or manhood began when a boy became 13, but they said they kind of reached maturity by the time they were 30. It was also the age at which priests began to serve in the temple. We also know that Joseph in the Old Testament was 30 years old when he began serving the king in Egypt. And David, King David, was 30 years old when he became king of Israel. So, beginning his ministry at age 30 put Jesus in some pretty good company. And so with that simple statement about Jesus' age, Luke begins his genealogy. And I want to begin by just making some uh, basic general observations about both genealogies with you, Matthew's and Luke's. First, notice that Luke began his genealogical record in the present. He started with Jesus and then worked his way back through history to Adam. Okay, He started at the present and went back in time. Matthew, on the other hand, began his genealogy with Abraham and came forward through history to Jesus. Now, both Matthew and Luke were writing their Gospels to very specific audiences. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and Luke to a Gentile audience. And both of these writers wanted to persuade their readers that Jesus is the Messiah. And they both knew the Old Testament prophets had foretold the Messiah would come through the lines of Abraham and David. It was a messianic requirement. Remember in Deuteronomy 18, Moses had prophesied that the Lord would raise up another prophet like Moses himself, one who would come from your own countrymen, he said. One who would come from your own countrymen, meaning this future prophet, the Messiah, would be a Jew, a descendant of Abraham. And then in 2 Samuel 7, God declared to King David the words that I read for you a few minutes ago. I will raise up your descendant after you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever forever. Your throne will be established forever. So the Messiah would also be a king, a descendant of David. Now again, Matthew and Luke both knew these prophecies. And as a result, they each used their genealogy to reveal that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies coming through the lines of Abraham and David. My second observation for you is that both genealogies appear to point us to Joseph, but each one is styled a little bit differently. Luke seems to provide a fuller, more complete genealogy. He provides a list of 75 names from Joseph to Adam. Now, he uses a more traditional approach listing son to father as he goes backwards in time. Matthew, on the other hand, tells us in verse 17 that he has structured his genealogy more stylistically. He said, I'm creating for you three groups of 14 generations. So Matthew provides a a total of 42 names and what that means is there's going to be some gaps in his genealogy he's he's going to skip some names as he creates those three groupings but in that culture at that time this was perfectly acceptable approach to use for genealogical lineage my third observation is a little bit more substantive matthew traces his line of david through his son solomon you see that in verse six of matthew and some have called this the royal line and they call it the royal line because every king in judah came through the line of solomon every single king so they called it the royal line and it was every king until the very moment when nebuchadnezzar invaded And carried the people into exile. Now Luke, on the other hand, traces the line of David through his son, Nathan. Nathan. You see that in verse 31 of Luke's genealogy. And some have called Luke's the legal line of David. Now most of us have heard of Solomon, right? But who in the world is Nathan. I haven't heard of Nathan. 2 Samuel 5 and 1 Chronicles 3 tell us that Nathan is Solomon's brother. Now this Nathan, the brother of Solomon, he is not to be confused with Nathan the prophet who who served in David's court. That's a different Nathan. But Nathan and Solomon were brothers, both born to David By Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the mother of both of them. But none of Nathan's descendants ever sat on the throne. Only Solomon's. The descendants of Nathan had a legitimate claim to the throne. Because they were sons of David. But their claim to the throne was always surpassed by a descendant of Solomon. He was from the royal line. And in a monarchy, the son in the royal line always has priority over the son in the legal line. And so as a result, the descendants of Nathan never sat on the throne, never had a chance to rule over the country. So Matthew's genealogy comes through Solomon, and Luke's genealogy comes through Nathan. One genealogy For each brother. Interesting. And I'll come back to that in a couple minutes. My fourth observation is much more scandalous. As if David's family line didn't have enough scandal already. But there's more. In verse 11 of Matthew's genealogy, he identifies a king named Jeconiah whose father was Josiah. You see that? I have that highlighted in red. Jeconiah. Now, Josiah was actually Jeconiah's grandfather, but that's not the scandal. That's just one of those gaps that we talked about in the genealogy uh, a few minutes ago. Jeconiah is the final king in Judah, right before they go into exile. He's the final king in Judah. The Old Testament books of Kings and Chronicles refer to him as Jehoiachin. But we are going to refer to him this morning as Jeconiah since that is how Matthew identifies him. Now, Jeconiah reigned for only three months right before Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and carried all the people off into exile. And they deported Jeconiah and his mother, and his servants, and his captains, and his officials, all of them into Babylon. You can read about it in 2 Kings 24, or Second Chronicles 36. The scandal does not appear until we read Jeremiah chapter 22. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, we read that God decreed a judgment against Jeconiah's family line the entire family line for many generations Jeconiah's ancestors had ruled over Judah doing what was evil and detestable in the eyes of the Lord in the hundred years before Jeconiah five kings had ruled over Judah and only one of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord The other four were exceedingly evil and they boasted in their uh, wickedness. They were arrogant about it. And God had patiently sent the prophets with warning after warning after warning. But these kings, including Jeconiah, these kings closed their ears and refused to listen. And finally... God said, enough, enough. And he sent Jeremiah to prophesy that Jeconiah would be handed over to Nebuchadnezzar and that he and his mother would be thrown into exile and they would die in a foreign land, never to return to the land of Judah. And further and further, no man of his descendants will prosper Ever sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. This means none of Jeconiah's descendants would ever sit on the throne of David ever again. God was withdrawing his blessing and removing the privilege of ruling as king, they had lost that privilege. The royal line of Solomon was essentially cursed during Jeconiah's reign and would no longer rule ever again now I think all of this leads us to ask a fundamental question about the genealogy which is this what is Matthew communicating through this genealogy what's Matthew doing you know, many of us initially read the genealogies simply as a list of names, like we're reading a family tree. But these observations that I have walked you through seem to indicate that Matthew is communicating more than just names. Something else is on Matthew's mind. And I believe there are two things Matthew wants us to know. First, because Joseph becomes Jesus' legal father when he marries Mary, Matthew needed to establish beyond any doubt the credibility of Joseph's heritage and lineage. He needed to show that Joseph was a descendant of Abraham and a son of David through the line of Solomon. Remember, this would have been exceedingly important to his Jewish audience. They wanted to know if he had connections to Abraham and David. But second, this is the the bigger issue of the two. Second, Matthew was writing his gospel, remember, to show his fellow Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, right? That was his purpose. And he began with Joseph's genealogy. And here's the key, friends. Here's the key. Matthew is making the argument that if Jesus really was the Messiah, he could not have been Joseph's biological son. If Jesus really was the Messiah, he could not have been Joseph's biological son. Remember, Matthew's genealogy showed that Joseph was a descendant of Jeconiah, Jeconiah, a descendant of the cursed line. None of those descendants would ever sit on the throne. And if Jesus was Joseph's biological child, he too would be part of the cursed line, and he would never be allowed by God to ascend to the throne of David. See, Matthew opens his gospel with this news, and essentially he says to his Jewish readers, I know you think Joseph is Jesus' father. I know that. I know you think that Joseph got Mary pregnant before they were married. And I have heard you talk about Jesus and refer to him as, oh, that's the carpenter's son. Or I have heard you ask, or ask about him and refer to him as, oh, that's Joseph's son. But here's the truth, Matthew says. Here's the truth. You can see it in the genealogy. He is not Joseph's biological son. If Jesus is the Messiah and I am writing this gospel to show you that that's the case, if Jesus really is the Messiah, then he could not have been conceived by Joseph because of Jeconiah's curse. And I think when Matthew's readers pondered this and then acknowledged, oh my goodness, Jeconiah was cursed, the very next question they would have asked would have been what? Well, then, who is the father who did get Mary pregnant? How was Jesus conceived, right? That would be the natural next question, right? Of course they would ask that. And I think this explains why the very next subject Matthew writes about in his gospel is what? The virgin birth, the the miraculous conception and virgin birth of Jesus, that just makes good sense, doesn't it? Matthew is writing, and it's like pieces of a puzzle are coming together. I'm going to tell you who J- that Joseph can't be. He can't be the father of Jesus. But let me tell you how Jesus was conceived. And then notice in verse 16, Matthew did not identify Joseph as the father of jesus notice how careful he was with his wording it says that joseph the husband of mary of whom jesus was born who is called the christ so he identifies jesus actually as the child of mary now when all of this came into focus for me last week i was uh I was excited. (laughs) And it reminded me, again, in a fresh way, that God sovereignly oversees this world. It's like the old hymn that says, this is my father's world. And it is, friends. And he sovereignly oversees it. And like pieces on a chessboard, he is patiently moving all of history towards the accomplishment of his redemptive purposes. And so, as I prepared this message, seeing how God had put all of this together through centuries of history, well, my heart and my mind were racing, and my excitement to share all of this with you was growing every single day. Now, let me take a few more minutes and tell you how I believe this impacts this understanding of Matthew, how that impacts Our understanding of Luke's genealogy the first thing I'll tell you is I believe Luke is giving us the genealogy of Mary not of Joseph I stated earlier that both genealogies appear to point us to Joseph but it only appears that way on the surface I believe Luke's genealogy actually points us to Mary, and I believe this for a couple of reasons. First, comes back to the lineage of David. Luke traced his genealogy through David's son, Nathan. We see that in verse 31 of Luke's genealogy. Matthew, remember, traced Joseph's family line through Solomon, Nathan's brother. Well... If Joseph is the son of Solomon, he cannot also be the son of Solomon's brother, Nathan. Can't be. Which means, which means Luke's genealogy must be a family line of a different person. A different person of whom Jesus is the offspring And friends, that can only be one person, Mary. This has to be the line of Mary. The second reason I believe this is because of the wording that Luke chooses in verse 23. He says, Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. So it was thought of Joseph. Now, in the opening two chapters, Of Luke's gospel which we walked through in our Christmas series Luke has been crystal clear about Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit and Jesus being a biological son of Mary and now as Luke begins to list the names in Mary's genealogy he did so using the more traditional approach, remember? Not stylistic like Matthew, but the more traditional approach, which means he would not have included the names of women. That wasn't the traditional approach. So he didn't use Mary's name. Instead, he very carefully chose his wording to say that Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, And then he went on to delineate Mary's ancestry. Now, this understanding of Luke's genealogy carries a second implication. Namely, it means that Jesus' claim to the throne of David comes primarily through Mary. Primarily through Mary. Like Matthew, Luke is aware of the prophecies about the Messiah, saying that he must be from the line of Abraham and David. And so Luke is diligent to show that Mary's line did in fact come through Abraham and David. But interestingly, interestingly, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary and Donald Barnhouse in his commentary take this one step further and they add this additional insight, which I found fascinating they said when Joseph married Mary he became the legal father of Jesus and Jesus became his firstborn son now as the firstborn son of Joseph Jesus would now qualify to receive all of the privileges of the royal line of Solomon Namely, the right to be king. And he would qualify for those privileges without inheriting the curse. Why? Because Jesus was an adopted son, not a biological son. And again, I read that and I sat back and I just, I marveled at how God orchestrated all of this. Weaving this tapestry of pur- redemptive purpose together. In Jesus' line, in Jesus, in Jesus, the person of Jesus, Mary's line and Joseph's line come together and converge. And they make Jesus the legal Messiah and the royal Messiah, the uncursed Messiah, the true Messiah, and the only possible Messiah. One more, just one more, I'll one more learning or implication with you from Luke's genealogy. Luke reminds us that Jesus is the Savior of all people. Jesus is the Savior of all people, not only the Jews. We notice that Luke traced Jesus's genealogy all the way back to Adam. Do you see that in verse 38? Luke adds, he adds this because he's writing his gospel to a Gentile Roman official named Theophilus, most likely a recent convert. And he wants to assure Theophilus, and he wants to assure all of us that Jesus is the savior of all humanity, the Gentiles and the Jews. He came to save all people. And so Luke takes the genealogy beyond Abraham and goes all the way back to Adam. And when he calls Adam the son of God in verse 38, Luke does not mean this in the same way that Jesus is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Luke is simply acknowledging that Adam had no parents but was formed by God on that day from the dust of the ground. And in that creation sense, he was the son of God. Now, studying the genealogy and preparing to teach this week and trying to figure out how in the world am I going to make this interesting for people, uh, this process all reminded me of a very important truth that's relevant for our lives today. And that truth is this. God is not confused by the complex and detailed issues in our lives. God is not confused by the complex and detailed issues in our lives. This truth is vital for us here today. Because many of us are facing difficult and complicated challenges Some of us are feeling like we are nearly overwhelmed, barely able to keep our head above water. Some of us here today are weighed down and confused by health and medical issues. Others of us by marital and parental challenges. Others of us by financial and vocational dilemmas. And some of us have a mixture of all of those. The specifics of our personal situation may be loaded down with details and complexity and uncertainty it might be weighed down by explanations that we do not understand or outside forces that we cannot control or decisions that we just are not prepared to make christy and i were talking just a couple of days ago about a decision that we were getting ready to make but as we talked we started to consider the decision from a different angle and quickly realized that angle was a whole lot more complicated than we originally thought. And so we put the decision on hold, realizing we needed a little bit more time. My point in saying that is life is complicated. And there are so many details to try to remember and keep track of and factor into decisions that get made. The genealogy that Luke and Matthew provide remind us God is not confused by the complex and detailed issues that we face. For thousands of years, God has orchestrated the events of history. He has overseen nations and kingdoms and families and even the genealogical details of individuals so that so that his purposes, his prophecies, and his promises would all come to pass, just as he said they would. And as he guides me and Christy each day, and as he guides you as well each day, if you will let him, the details and complications of our lives will never confuse him, they will never frustrate him, and they will never thwart his purposes. Nothing is too difficult or too complicated for God. He knows every detail of every issue better than our doctors, our spouses, and our closest confidants. He knows what we need to do. And he will guide our steps along the way. He will provide answers and guidance at just the right time through the prophet isaiah god gave this promise to his people he said do not fear do not fear for i have redeemed you i have called you by name and you are mine when you pass through the waters i will be with you and when you pass through the rivers they will not sweep over you when you walk through the fire You will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So turn to him, friends. Turn to him. Tell him what is weighing heavily on your heart and on your mind. Admit confusion. Acknowledge uncertainty. And patiently trust his timing. And then take one step at a time as his guidance arrives. Let's pray. And then the worship team will come and lead us in our final song. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our ability to gather this morning and worship you through singing, and giving, and praying, and preaching, and fellowship. We thank you for your word, which is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And you still speak to us through it. You still reveal something about yourself to us. And this morning you did it in a genealogy. Lord, we do pray for people this morning who are facing health and medical issues, marriage and parental challenges, financial and vocational dilemmas, or some combination of all of them. Lord, life is complicated, and we need you, and we need your guidance. You are not confused by details. Complexity doesn't confound you, so we ask you for help as many of us here are facing difficult and overwhelming circumstances. And we thank you in advance for the help that you will provide at just the right time. Keep our faith strong so that we do not give up. Lord, I thank you for the year-end report that Chuck has prepared and is about to give us, and we thank you for the good news that it contains. We thank you for the careful and diligent oversight that he and Laurel provide over our finances. We are grateful to them and for them. And God, I pray that you would continue to watch over and lead Christ Community Church. You are our God, and we are your people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.